0: Welcome to Rhetoric Orama, a podcast about all things rhetoric. Here are your hosts, Dr. David R. Dewberry and Dr. Tim, as seen on TV, McGee. I'm Dave. And I'm Tim. And today we continue our third season of Rhetoric Orama by discussing the wonderful world of rhetoric. This season is on the rhetoric of X, where X equals a subject, a profession, a field, or a discourse community. Today's topic is the Rhetoric of Propaganda, which was selected to match the theme of this year's big rhetorical podcast carnival. Now let's hear some untranslated Latin or Greek to get us started.
1: Quam abrem ut religio propaganda etiam est, quai est juncto cum cognitione naturae sic superstitiones stirpes omnes elegendi.
0: Ah, Tim, what exactly is propaganda? Before saying what it is, I'll say what it was,
1: because its use and reputation has changed considerably over the past 400 years.
0: So, Tim, tell us why you uh, you specified 400 years.
1: It turns out that next year is the 400th anniversary of an administrative body of the Catholic Church created in 1622 as part of the Counter-Reformation called the Congregatio de Propaganda Fide, Congregation for Propagating the Faith, or informally, simply propaganda.
0: You know, Tim, that's what I, that's, that's what I thought you were going to say.
1: <laughs> it wasn't until the 1790s that the term was applied to secular activities. And according to one scholar, the word didn't pick up its negative connotations until the mid-19th century, when it was used in the political sphere.
0: Uh, Tim, the subtext of, uh, of this account that you're giving us, uh, it implies that uh, propagating a religion is not a political act, if I'm reading you correctly.
1: Good point, one that we'll return to in a bit.
0: All right, Tim, so what does a contemporary definition of propaganda include?
1: Communication theorist Harold Laswell defined it as, quote, the expression of opinions or actions carried out deliberately by individuals or groups with a view to influencing the opinions or actions of other individuals or groups for predetermined ends and through psychological manipulation.
0: You know, Tim, if I could summarize all that up in one word, it sounds like the word rhetoric to me. Admittedly, Laswell's
1: definition is awfully broad. Richard Allen Nelson gets more specific in terms of purpose, techniques, and channels when he defined it as follows. Propaganda is neutrally defined as a systematic form of purposeful persuasion that attempts to influence the emotions, attitudes, opinions, and actions of specified target audiences for ideological, ideological, political or commercial purposes to the controlled transmission of one-sided messages, which may or may not be factual, via mass and direct media channels.
0: Mm, I love that, Tim. All right, so uh, how about we turn to and look at some of the techniques? Um, propagandists, they always have an agenda. And Tim, if you'll allow me a grammatical diversion for a moment, uh, you will note that both of these words have the uh, include enda, E-N-D-A, a uh, portion that points to them being a particular part of speech known among us latinists as a gerundive or a verbal adjective denoting something that is to be done or something to or about to be done so agenda means things to be done and propaganda means things to be put forth however tim as you may know the simple predicative sense invites a secondary meaning of obligation so agenda can come to mean ought to be done or must be done, and propaganda comes to mean ought to or must be put forth.
1: So, Dave, apparently that Latin minor of yours wasn't a complete waste of
0: time. Carthago delinda estem. All right. Now, on to... The jokes are so good on this show, aren't they, Tim? We should have millions of subscribers. But anyway, uh, on the non-objective part of the definition, uh, that's a no-brainer, right?
1: Speaking of brainless, that's what I think of those who insist that objectivity is always desirable and frequently possible. A more realistic stance would be to say that objectivity is frequently desirable and occasionally possible. But I digress.
0: Okay, so moving uh, to the encouraging a particular perception uh, that is true almost of all communication, I'd say, Tim, and uh, truly amounts to n- uh, little more than having a focus or choosing a topic. But there is an art of framing a discussion that propagandists are especially adept at. Uh, they put considerable effort into policing the terms uh, in which a subject can be discussed. Amen to that, brother. And next comes loaded language. Uh, but who doesn't use that? I mean, everybody's using loaded language. Uh, the notion of loaded language assumes the possibility of unloaded language, which sounds, well, pretty meaningless to me. It's like a, it's like a hollow point, Tim.
1: Good one. But you must admit that words often have multiple synonyms with connotations that exist on a continuum from positive to negative, with the median term being the least loaded.
0: True enough, Tim. Uh, Not to mention that the notion of dog whistles, which open the possibility of choosing language that is loaded for one audience while appearing neutral for another. And then finally, we get to the efforts to promote an emotional rather than logical response, which participates uh, in the questionable evaluation of reason over emotion, which is a probably uh, which is a probably a topic for another podcast, possibly one devoted to the notion that uh, the reason that reason is rhetorical. Uh, a la Richard Harvey Brown.
1: All right, enough on techniques. Let's talk about who produces propaganda.
0: Uh, for sure. Uh, governments have been a major uh, have been major producers of propaganda in the modern era, but if you think back to the origin, uh, back to its origin in the C of R, the Church of Rome, as you know it, Tim, uh, you had a religion that was in effect a government through much of Europe and continued as such until the end of the Holy Roman Empire or the HRE, as you probably call it.
1: Good point. Other examples include both the Axis and Allied powers in World War II, the Soviet Union in the post-war period, and the U.S. in Vietnam.
0: In addition to governments, uh, you have activist groups including environmentalists, animal rights advocates, gun lovers, and free market zealots.
1: Well said. But wasn't that zealots a bit of loaded language?
0: I would agree, but it's on the small caliber. Uh, You know, I'm not here calling gun lovers gun nuts, which alienates people who shoot long rifles with a bolt action.
1: (laughs) All right. Companies have also been known to produce propaganda. Recently, a leaked video showed a top ExxonMobil lobbyist admitting the company worked with, quote, shadow groups, unquote, that engaged in disinformation campaigns around climate
0: science. Mm. Then as already mentioned, Tim, there are religious organizations, but not just the C of R, the Church of Rome, in the 17th century, uh, given that several several religious traditions uh, include proselytizing as a God-given mandate. Go forth and make disciples, said Jesus. I assume he sounded like that. I don't know. Uh, Said Jesus according to Matthew chapter 28. So ought to be put forth, uh, the ought to be... Put forth notion of propaganda is actually something required of the faithful, especially the Jehovah's Witnesses, as you may know, Tim.
1: And let's not forget about mass media, not simply as channels for disseminating propaganda, but as the for-profit entities vigorously engaged in self-promotion to increase their market share.
0: And finally, we get individuals such as the Koch brothers, uh, the Mercers, and the participants in any number of think tanks who have come to understand the importance of winning the hearts and minds of their audiences. Why they don't focus on other parts of the body, I guess that's for another episode. Uh, But those audiences could be consumers, voters, or you know, they're probably both.
1: Okay, now that we know what it is, how it works, and who produces it, what can we do about it? In other words, what should people do when they think or know that they have been exposed to or subjected to propaganda?
0: Mm, They should consider the source and use critical thinking. Easier said than done, Dave. Uh, Much like juggling three thermonuclear devices. Uh, But what's hard about considering the source there, Tim?
1: What's hard is that readers of The New York Times know not to trust Fox
0: News, and viewers of Fox News know not to trust The New York Times. True enough, Tim. But there are organizations that evaluate the trustworthiness of journalistic sources and
1: who evaluates the trustworthiness of those organizations, your egghead academic elites, which is to say a bunch of commies.
0: <laughs> I see what you mean, Tim. Uh, credibility, like uh, like other aspects of knowledge, is vulnerable to an infinite regress. Still, there's merit considering the source, even if it does open an epistemological can of worms, which is a phrase I say all the time. You know this, Tim. Uh, for do. example, uh, any statement accompanied by people are saying or many people think should be viewed skeptically, especially when it comes from an administrator or a department chairperson.
1: (laughs) Agreed. But have you noticed the increased frequency with which news reports, quote, officials who, quote, remained anonymous because they were not authorized to speak on behalf of the organization, unquote. I propose we give those officials their own acronym, NATSOBOTO, for not authorized to speak on behalf of the organization.
0: You know, I can live with that, Tim, but I've just called them lizard people from space. (laughs) right? But what about this critical thinking stuff you're telling us about?
1: That too is challenging, but I think doable. While there are debates about the meaning of critical thinking, with some people rendering the phrase close to meaningless by including analysis and synthesis, a better definition focuses on the fact that critical denotes judgment. So critical thinking is most precisely understood as evaluating the quality of the relationship between an assertion and that which is offered in support of that assertion.
0: Agreed, Tim. And and critical thinking can also be positive as well as negative. I think most people associate with just the negative part. But this is heady stuff we're talking about, Tim. But I think you are right. Uh, Reasonably intelligent people, even people like us, Tim, should be able to look at the claims, look at what is offered in support of those claims, and then decide if those claims are credible. Everybody needs a little Stephen Toolman in their life.
1: But again, this part can get tricky for a couple reasons. Just like the problem with consider the source, connections that seem reasonable to one audience seem unreasonable to another, because many of your so-called reasonably intelligent people fall victim to a host of fallacies, both formal, the ones that depend upon actual logical relationships, and informal ones, those whose misleading appearance are often connected to various aspects of natural language, such as ambiguous or vague expressions. Okay, so consider the source and apply critical thinking. Is there anything else people can do? Are there any cool resources to help people determine whether a message is or is not propaganda?
0: Well, there's two ways you can do this, Tim. Uh, One is there is a a source called Mind Over Media, the Mind Over Media tool. Uh, It's provided by the nice folks over at the Media Education Lab. Uh, You simply go over to propaganda.mediaeducationlab.com, and you will find a tool that allows you to view a message, Rate it on a scale from beneficial to harmful, and instantly see how your rating compares to those of uh, other viewers. Uh, you can also upload your own example of a uh, own example of a message, and watch videos on how to recognize propaganda when you see it. Uh, the second one is listening to the fabulous Rama available, where you get all your uh, podcasts.
1: Excellent point. Another great resource is a book by Edward S. Herman and Noam Chomsky called Manufacturing Consent, first published in 1988 with revised editions in 2002 and 2009. The authors describe a propaganda model for the manufacture of public consent that includes five aspects, the size, ownership, and profit orientation of mass media, the advertising license to do business, sourcing of mass media news, Flack and the Enforcers.
0: Weren't that wasn't that an eighties band, New Wave band that you tried to get me to listen to?
1: No, that was that was Flack of Seagulls. Oh, okay. And finally, anti-communism and war on terror filters as major social control mechanism.
0: All right, Tim, that might wrap things up for the rhetoric of propaganda covering the last four centuries of evolution from what it was uh, to what it has become. But let's come full circle and return to what you promised earlier. Something about um, uh, returning to the notion that propaganda uh, that propagating a religion might be a political act.
1: Thanks for the reminder, Dave. If we go back to the Council of Trent, it was during its third and final period that the Church of Rome, after having established the Vulgate as the official version of the Bible, the council appointed a commission to prepare a list of forbidden books, the Index Librorum Prohibitorum.
0: Ah, uh, so what you're saying, uh, Tim, is that cancel culture has really been around for at least 460 years?
1: That's the... that's. That's it, Dave.
0: Now it's time for the bonus content. Will it be a fallacy, a historical anecdote, or rhetorical device? Let's have Dr. Tim spin the wheel. OK, we've landed on fallacy.
1: In a truly coincidental occurrence, today's bonus content is on the is-ought fallacy.
0: That's right, Tim. Uh, This is when an argument offers a conclusion on what ought to be because it is morally right based on what is more natural or what exists in nature. So here's an example of this. Uh, In nature, we are all going to die, so we shouldn't take any vaccines. The argument here is that since in nature, all living things will die, we ought not to mess with that process. We shouldn't disrupt nature by taking scientifically tested vaccines to thwart an existential threat to humanity. Very topical, Dave. Well, to, well, well, Tim, I, I think they're an intramuscular, intramuscular injection, uh, not a topical treatment. But anyway, uh, the problem, of course, is that we disrupt the state of nature all the time with various me- uh, medicines and whatnot. I mean, that Tim, that other day when you had that giant Mountain Dew, that's not nature. <laughs> that's not nature at all. It is so, medicine. It is medicine. Uh, in the in the backwoods of Appalachia. Uh, I can say that I'm from there. In other words, uh, just because something is uh, natural or part of nature doesn't mean it's right in any moral sense. So in essence, uh, the is-ought fallacy says just because something is, and by is, I mean exists in nature, doesn't mean that's the way it should be. And since we're talking about the meaning of the world is, how about this example? Just because people cheat on their wives out in the world, that doesn't mean it's right.
1: I feel your pain, Dave. (laughs) All right. But, how about this one? Killing exists in the state of nature, animals, food chain, that idea, but that does not mean it's right for people to kill other humans
0: well well well, Tim the propagandist might say that this is uh, that it is morally right to kill others if it allows them to achieve their goals and it's it's wise to keep in mind that we're talking about the moral sense and moral arguments when we 're talking about the azot fallacy, but ultimately, the idea of this fallacy is to get people to reason about morality. Based on something uh, besides nature. So, Tim, all right, who's uh, who's sponsoring this uh, this episode?
1: Today's episode is sponsored by a revolutionary new technology. Do you sometimes suspect that one of your beliefs directly contradicts another of your cherished principles? For example, are you pro-life but you support the death penalty, or maybe you want free markets but like having tariffs on imports? Don't worry, you're not alone. Ever since the principle of eye for an eye was melded with turn the other cheek, people the world over have experienced bouts of anxiety when confronted by their own hypocrisy. Finally, there is a new tool to help you identify conflicting beliefs. It's called the Hippocrometer. This voice-activated app allows you to simply enter two beliefs or position statements and immediately identify them as consistent, slightly incompatible, or self-contradictory with a green, amber, or red light. No longer will you have to take refuge in the notion that a foolish consistency is the hobgoblin of small minds or Whitman's defense that I contradict myself because I contain multitudes. You, too, can now be as consistent as Emerson's Little statesmen and Philosophers and Divines, thanks to the voice-activated Hypochrometer, available online or at better retail stores.
0: I'm David R. Dewberry, and that's Tim as seen on TV McGee. We're professors of communication at Rider University, and this has been Rhetoric-O-Rama, a podcast about all things rhetoric. If you have any questions or are looking for more information, you can contact us via our website, rhetoric.fun, or consult your local library.